meetings in the time that we'll have together. But I hope this will encourage you. As I said, I use this with uh, Christians and non-Christians alike. A lot of times when we find ourselves faltering in our faith, it's because we've forgotten who God is or who we are or how bad sin is or what it does. And so as we go back over these things again, it kind of sets us back on the foundation and guides us back to him. And no better place to do that than in his word. So to, to do that, we'll just begin reading together. If somebody would like to take the first reading, we'll read verses 1 through 5. We may not get through more than that in this first part of the class. Verses 1 through 5. Thank you, sir. Jerome? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Thank you very much. So we see right away, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If God created in the beginning, what existed before that? You just did. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Why do you say that? <laughs> A lot of times people will say nothing. <laughs> I think you're right. Your, your response that God existed is right. Why would you say that? What does is, what is this very first verse of the Bible teach us? Yes, there has to be a creator to create something. Yes, and it makes perfect sense. We know that piece of artwork is not on the wall because nothing created it. Somebody painted that. So we understand that the creator of necessity exists before his creation. So as the Bible begins by saying, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the Bible already tells us something implicit that God already existed. And what that means is that God is before all of the creation. We like to think of God as being immortal. I think that's right. It's just not right enough. There's another word that better describes God. What would that word be? Eternal, yes. Immortal simply means that it cannot die. But there was a beginning to something that then cannot die. Eternal means there was no beginning and no end. Eternal just means it goes in both directions. Whatever the thing that's eternal is, goes in both directions. And the Bible will point us to that thing not being a thing at all. But God being the person of God. And so the very first verse of the Bible already begins to show us something of his nature by this simple statement. In the beginning, God created. He was already there in the beginning. And what did he create? The heavens and the earth. What else is there? <laughs> this phrase really depicts everything that is visible and invisible, everything that's tangible and intangible, everything we might say celestial and earthly, or however you want to use those two terms. But this means all of the spiritual realm and everything that it entails, and all the physical realm and everything that it entails. God made all of it. And that already also shows us something about God, that he is not part of either the strictly spiritual world or the strictly physical world. And we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go through the text here. But I want us to understand that where the Bible begins is one of the greatest arguments for the existence of God. This is the argument by design. Argument from design, perhaps you'd rather say. That if there's something that's been designed, then necessarily there is a designer. Welcome, guys. We're in the first verse of Genesis chapter 1. Good to see you guys. So if something has been designed, necessarily there is then a designer. I want you to, to understand the importance of this argument that the Bible makes. It's, it's one of the strongest arg arguments there is. 
uh, about the existence of God. I want you to open, if you would, with me quickly in the Gospel of John. It's interesting. John is writing in, in great part to defend the divinity of Christ, the godness of Christ. By the time he's writing, there are some that are, that are starting to doubt the divinity, the actual God nature of Jesus. And so John writes his gospel to defend the deity of Christ. And look how he begins his gospel. It's amazing. He's thinking of Genesis 1. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Look what John did to defend that Jesus is God. This is amazing. He went to the argument from design. If you are eternal, you're in the beginning with God from the beginning, God was there in eternity, and you are the one who made all things, then you're God. That's what John says. And in his text here, he's going to end up pointing that and saying, that one that did all that, he came and walked among us, John 1, 14. He took on flesh. That's Jesus. That's who he's talking about. He's defending Jesus' deity with the argument from design. If he's the designer and he's eternal, then he's God. How simple is that? And that's what John did, and that's really where the Bible begins. It's interesting to me, however, that not only John the Apostle and then Moses here in Genesis use that approach. Are you familiar with Psalm 19? Isn't that what David's saying in Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory and the praises, and they speak out about, somebody made me. When we look at the creation, we of necessity understand there's a creator. We don't know who it is. In fact, many times I'll approach this study with atheists. I was one myself at one point. I'll approach this study with atheists who don't believe in a God, but they have to come to terms with understanding that the God we believe in has revealed these things, or we believe he's revealed these things, and he says he's the creator of all this. Somebody made it. Who was it? And most times they don't have an answer. And so we have to agree that at least this is the Christian mindset, the Christian viewpoint. It's one of the things I want us to understand. We may not all agree on all the details, but everything that's in here is what Christians ought to believe about what God says about himself, because this is where he told us. It's not what I feel about God or what you feel about God. It, this is what he said, and so this is where we need to come to agreement. So God is the creator from the beginning. He made the heavens and the earth. That's just a phrase that means everything that was made. Not only did Moses and John the Apostle and uh, David in Psalm 19 in Acts chapter 17, Paul the Apostle, when he's speaking with the pagans, the, uh, the philosophers at Athens, he begins with the argument from design. I see that you're very religious, you've been worshiping all these gods, and there's even a statue to the unknown God in Acts 17. He says, let me declare him to you. God who made the world and everything in it. The creator of all these things, he's the one I want to declare to you. And so he uses this same argument. We're on solid biblical grounds, starting here but we want to focus our attention back to where it needs to be. We'll talk about why that matters perhaps when we get into chapter 3, the question of sin. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we're told something in verse 2, kind of the conditions at the beginning. I don't believe we necessarily have to think of Genesis chapter 1 as kind of a chronology, although there will be chronological steps here. But it is just kind of a condition at the beginning that there's things that need to be taken care of. There's really three things that are mentioned in this verse. What, what three things do we see here about the earth itself? What's the first one? Without form. Without form. Uh, some, some verses will say in chaos, some of the older translations have the word chaos here. But there's no form. There's no, there's no order at all. What else? Void. Void. What does that word really mean? Empty. 
empty. Yeah, there's just it's just empty. There's nothing here. And what's the third one? Darkness. There's darkness and over the face of the deep or whatever. This idea is really of this deep, deep darkness, just this impenetrable darkness. So you've got uh, darkness, you've got emptiness, and you've got formlessness. And what we're going to see during this week of creation is God's going to re revert all three of those situations. He's, gonna, he's the one that takes care of problems. We're going to learn that about God right away. And then we'll see him put that into practice in chapter 2 when a problem arises. And then in chapter 3 when sin comes along, every time it's God who resolves the issues. And we're going to see him doing that. In fact, we're going to see it in, in inverted order here as he, as he takes care of these things. And we'll point that out as we go through the rest of the text here. But God is taking care of these three things. And there's something else at the end of verse 2. For the first time in the Bible, we meet God in verse 2. And how does he appear to us? Who is God in verse 2 that we see? Someone said it, I think. Spirit. Spirit. The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. And I want to suggest to you that there's an important reason this is already in verse 2, that we meet God this way. I believe this is the jumping off point for most people when it comes to worshiping God. Most people don't think of God as spirit. Most people try to think of God as man. Of course, in our context, we're thinking of God in the form of Jesus, who came as a man, in the form of a man. But he's not a man. God, in the deity, in the, in the existence of God, in the nature of God, he's not man. He's spirit, and completely spirit. Not a spirit creature, but just a spirit being in all sense of spirit. And so it's really important that we begin here learning that God's nature is different from ours. This is part of what makes him holy, which makes him separate. But I want to uh, help you understand why this is so important with two texts that, that really point this, this, this uh, idea out. I'll start in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I want you to understand the context here in Deuteronomy. You remember that Israel was... Uh, the whole nation was enslaved in Egypt. You've probably seen the movie where Pharaoh won't let the people go, and uh, Moses goes, and you've probably read in Exodus where Moses goes, and he, and he brings the people out at the command of God. And there's the ten plagues, and there's other signs that Moses performs as well. And the people finally are allowed to leave. Well, they're not very obedient, and they end up spending 40 years wandering through the wilderness. And when Deuteronomy is written, Moses is reminding them of all that God has done for them as they're about now to enter into the promised land, a second generation. That adult generation that was rebellious has all died off except for two people. So Moses is reiterating the things that they went through. And when he gets into Deuteronomy 4, starting at verse 15, he explains to them about how God first appeared to them. Now, the first time God appears to us in Genesis 1-2 is as spirit. That's how he appeared to Moses the first time, too as a burning bush that didn't really burn. That was not really flame. There was some kind of a spiritual thing going on there. And then as he appeared to the people of Israel the first time, look what Moses said. So we'll start in verse 15 here. He says, Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as an heritage. But the Lord has taken you 
and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. So what is God, what is Moses said about God here? Why is it that God chose to appear on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb here, as thunder and lightning and earthquakes? Why did he do that? There's a specific reason Moses says here. Prevent us from committing idolatry? Yes, to keep people from deciding that this particular image is God and then bowing down before that image. didn't work very well because people's hearts are turned away from God anyway, so they made golden calves. They made all kinds of other images to worship him. And some worship just nature in essence, the thunder and the lightning and the earthquakes. But God's desire in not showing them any kind of form was that they would understand he doesn't take on any form of anything that's made. He is something different and above and holy compared to all of that. And so he tried to reach out to the people in a way that they wouldn't see anything that they would be tempted to worship other than him. And just understanding that he is. But what does man do? Man always looks for men. In fact, here they were starting to worship even Moses. They worshiped Aaron in some sense. They worshiped the law eventually. And they did not worship God as spirit. And men have tended to do that all through history. I want you to look with me now in John chapter 4, and then we'll talk about why these two passages are so important. So this is Moses as he's bringing the people out of captivity toward freedom to receive the promised land. In John chapter 4, we have Jesus. And he sits down at a well in Samaria. And he begins to speak with a woman. And he begins to reveal some things about her life. And this woman is religious, but she's been seeking for the truth. And when he starts to reveal things about the fact that she is not married now, even though she said she would call her husband, and he says, you've had several husbands, and the one you live with now is not your husband, she says, you must be a prophet. And then she has a religious question. If there's a prophet that can answer her spiritual question, she's going to ask him. And so she says uh, in, in about uh, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This is John 4, 19. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and and true. So what is Jesus saying to her? It's not the place. It's not this mountain or some other mountain. It's not even this temple that is where you have to worship. Where you have to worship is in spirit and in truth. Because God doesn't belong to temple. Solomon, when he built the temple, said it couldn't contain God. He understood that, and men ought to understand that. Paul made that same argument even in Acts 17 with the pagans, that God's not contained in temples made with hands. Because God is something so much greater and so much above. Yet we end up trying to put God into our little conception of him. Make him into the image of our church or our pastor or our desires or whatever it may be. God is above all of that. And what we have to do if we want to know who God is, is we have to go to where he tells us who he is and learn who he is. That means a couple of very important things. The first one of those we just saw both with Moses and with Jesus. In order for us to worship God properly, it is imperative that we understand his spirit nature. Jesus told her, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Moses said, God is spirit, therefore you saw no form. So unless we understand who God is and his nature, we cannot worship him properly. 
Well, why is that so? I think there's a practical reason we can look at. And it really is revealed to us over and over through the scriptures. It's in the way that God reveals himself to us. How can we possibly know what God wants from us? How are we going to know that? He has to communicate it to us. Yes. He has to communicate it. How do you know what your wife wants or your husband wants or your children want? You might intuit that, being close to them, being of the same nature as they are. It may be possible for me to guess what my wife wants. Usually I don't, and so I end up getting in trouble for that. It might be possible to guess what my children want because we're, we're humans, and we all basically need the same kind of things, and we like the same kind of thing. So most people approach worship that way. If I like this, it makes me feel good, it makes me feel fulfilled, then God's going to love this. And so we begin to create worship that fulfills our desires, and we think, isn't this great what I'm offering God? When he's not said a thing about it. You know, David said, I want to build God a house. And God said, when did I ever tell you I wanted a house? You're not going to build it. I'll let your son build it for me. Isn't that amazing? David thought he was doing a great thing. And so often through the Bible, Nadab and Abihu, they offered profane fire, which the Lord had not commanded them. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. God didn't say anything about that fire, and they offered it anyway, because they felt like that was the right thing. But so often that's what drives worship. How am I going to know what God wants? Well, he has to tell me. The same way if I'm only really going to know what my wife wants, I just have to ask her, what do you want? Well, how am I going to ask God who's a spirit? Well, fortunately, I don't have to. Because of his love for me, he already tells me. But he tells me here. It's not something here. It's not something here. God has revealed to me what he wants. And he talks about this over and over and over again. I want to show you the pattern so we understand this as we begin to approach God so we can do things properly. Again, let's go to Deuteronomy. This verse, I love it because of the simplicity and yet the, the profoundness of this verse. Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. The same Moses speaking here. Still to this same group of people. They're about to go into the promised land. And they want to make sure they do it right because they watched their generation of fathers die in the wilderness because they didn't do it right. They weren't listening to God. They were following after the dictates of their own hearts. So as he's preparing them, and he's about to die, Moses himself is about to die, he says, I want you to be prepared. So he says, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. He says, you have a way to know what's right. God told you. Anything else, that belongs to him. You don't have a right to presume that he's going to love this just because you do. You only have the right to do what he says to do if you want to please him. Now, there's a, a simpler way to see this exact same pattern in the New Testament. It's a verse that many people, many religious people especially, have memorized. Romans 10, 17 says what? Where does faith come from? Hearing. hearing. Where does hearing come from? The word of God. It's the same exact tenet as what's being said here in Deuteronomy 29, 29. If I didn't hear it from God and I just go do it, I can't claim that was from faith. I do sometimes. I'll say, oh, my faith is so strong that I'm doing this for God and this for God. And look at what our church is doing for God. Is that faith? Not if God didn't say it first. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing. Not by doing a bunch of things and saying, look how we're glorifying God. And they may be things that in and of themselves are good, but they're not from faith if God didn't first say, this is what I want. Was it a good thing to build a temple to God? It was. God told Solomon to do it. But when David said, I'm going to do it, God said, that's not what I want from you. How often would he look at our worship and say, I never asked you for that. That's not what I want from you. This is what I want from you. 
we were just talking earlier about uh, a present that was given. The, the husband gave the wife a bagel slicer, and uh, she happens to be uh, gluten intolerant. And so it's something he would like and thought maybe she could use for other people, but that's not really a good present for her. If he'd asked her, do you want a bagel slicer? She would have said, what am I going to use that for? But he presumed and thought it would be a really nice gift, but there was kind of miscommunication there. How often are we offering to God a bagel slicer when what he really wants is something completely different? Because we think it's a good idea. And because some pastor told us it's a good idea. Because some studious person from the past said this is a good idea. Where did the Bible say that's what God wants? There are other passages that tie into this same idea. Look at 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And after this, we'll look at one more. I really want this point to be belabored on purpose. Because we need to understand that if we are going to please God who is spirit, we only can do that once he tells us what he wants. We can't just guess and get it right. And the last verse we'll look at will show that. But 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, this may be one that some of you have memorized as well. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you want to do a good work and you want to be equipped properly for it, you're not looking at scripture to find it. There's lots of works out there, lots of things that feel good and look good to the eyes of men, but the good works and the equipment to do those, God gives us here. He specifically set us up for that. He wants us to do that. He made us for workmanship in Christ, Ephesians 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship. We are made to do good works in Christ. But now the clincher verse to me is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I know this is a lot of verses on that. On the slides, you'll have these again if you want to go look these up. But this is where I began to understand this most clearly. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He's speaking to a group here who had all sorts of spiritual gifts. They could speak in tongues. They could reveal the mind of God. But they also were doing some things that were abusive with those gifts. And Paul tells them about how the revelation of God is meant to come to me. 1 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 9. And he's quoting from the Old Testament here. He says, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us, speaking as an apostle here, to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but words which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. How did the Corinthians know what the will of God was? God revealed it to them through the apostles, primarily, first off. In words that were teaching godly wisdom, that's how the revelation came. It was by word. It wasn't by feeling. And what Paul started with there, I has not seen or ear heard. The idea is it didn't start with me. It's not like I just looked over and like, oh, that's what God wants. Or, what, did you hear that? That's the way people do it today sometimes. I, I just had this vision. I was at home. I had this vision. I know that's what God wants. Well, let's compare that vision to what God says he wants. <laughs> Is that exactly what he said? I just, I just had this feeling. It came into my heart. How does that come to us when God reveals it right here? So God as spirit, how am I going to know what he's thinking unless he tells me? That was what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.10 there. Who, who knows the spirit of a man except, or who knows what a man's thinking except the spirit of the man that's in him? 
That's what I was talking about. How am I going to know what my wife wants unless she just tells me? How am I going to know what God wants unless he tells me? So when we understand that God is spirit, we're in verse 2, so going back to Genesis 1 now. When we understand that God is spirit, it makes a difference how we approach him. When we think of God as a man, we mess up and we think, well, I'll just give some more in the offering plate. <laughs> He'll be appeased with this kind of a guy. I'll, give some, I'll pray longer prayers. Jesus talked about the Pharisees who for pretense prayed long prayers while they were robbing the widows' homes. They tried to make up for things in this kind of carnal way. If I just do a little bit more, then God will be pleased. No. If I give a little bit more of me, then God will be pleased. God wants me. That He wants a relationship with me. It's not the things God wants. It's me. And we'll see that as we go through, especially once we see sin and how God responds to sin with man. He's not looking for what man can give him. He wants man. And so God's will has been revealed to us to bring us to him, not just to have us giving him some things. But that's the way we tend to think religion, because we treat God as a man. If I can please my neighbor by you know, cutting his grass a few extra times since I messed up in our relationship, maybe that'll be good. I can't do that with God. I have to give to God what he wants to please him. So God is spirit, and he meets us for the first time in the Bible as spirit, and he's hovering here over the face of the waters. He's, he's above all. He's looking at this creation. He's going to begin to form it. And so we see him act for the first time in verse 3. What does God make first in, in verse 3? Light. Light. Yeah, I remember one of those problems of issues was deep darkness and abysmal darkness. He just makes light. And how does he do it? He speaks. He says, let there be light. Now, sometimes I'll be sitting across someone's dinner table and we'll be studying this, and I'll say, you do that. I'll reach over and turn on the light switch or something. I'll say, you didn't make light. <laughs> you just manipulate a little bit of electricity that was already there. Light. I want you to say, let there be light and watch it happen. I can't even say to my kids, go make your bed and watch it happen. Sometimes <laughs> i got to go in there and walk them through it. My word doesn't have that kind of authority. And certainly not to create out of nothing something like light. Light is one of those basic elements that we're studying for centuries and we still can't figure out what it is. Is it a wave? Is it a particle? Yes. <laughs> Both of those. Is it, is it what? What is it made of? How, how can we understand light? And yet God said, let there be light. And there was light. Incredible. Remember John in chapter 1, he said, the light shines in the darkness and darkness did not overcome it. Where there's light, there's the best there can be is some shadows off to the side. The light's dispersing the darkness. It's amazing. And God did that by the power of his word, which just shows us something else about his nature and his character. The power that God has resides in his word. How much more that ties into what we just talked about. If I want to tap into God's power, I need his word and his revelation to do that. If I truly believe that it's God's word that has the power to create light and to dispel the darkness even from my own heart, then why would I ever attempt to change his word? or downplay it, or add something, or take away from it in any way. And the more we'll see that as we go through this whole week, every time he speaks things into existence, he just says, let it be, and it is. That's an amazing, amazing authority. And his authority then resides in his word. And that's the kind of God that we're going to be meeting as we go through this Genesis chapter 1. I hope that's an amazing thought to you. We read these things kind of like kid stories sometimes. When we really stop and think about what's being said here, this is not children's literature. This is some deep, important stuff. God said, let there be light, and there was light. And he began to look at his creation, and what does he see when he looks at the light? He saw that it was good. 
It's amazing when we think about God analyzing his creation and then coming to this conclusion it was good. If you had to wager a guess, we're in a, in a Bible class here, we're looking at Bible uh, things. How many times do you think God's going to say something is good in this week of creation? If you just had to wager a guess. Close. Seven. Seven times. In fact, the seventh time he's going to say, it's very good. We're going to start seeing seven as a pattern. Certainly there's seven days. We'll see that. We're going to start seeing lots, lots of things in this text that will come through seven times. As we were going through the study of Revelation the other night at a, at a meetup, we see that number coming back into play. Revelation is heavily tied to Genesis. In fact, most of the Bible, you'll begin to see patterns that begin here that were literal things that become then used as figure as we go through the rest of the Bible because they were tied to a real meaning. It's so important that we understand the literal meaning if we're then going to understand the figurative meaning. But seven times God's going to say that it was good. And that's because of his nature. You know, on my best day, when I've done as, as good as I can do, when I've tried to be what God wants me to be to the best of my ability, when I sit on my bed and lay my head on my pillow and begin to pray, I can think of things that I could do better. <laughs> there are just things that I just should have done better. And there's sometimes I can think of things, most days, I shouldn't have done at all. It just wasn't good. God never has been like that. Never. His nature is such that there is nothing evil. There is, as James says, no shadow of turning. <coughs> it's an interesting phrase that he's using. There. We were just at the planetarium the other day with the Eatons. And the idea of the shadow of turning is, as the earth rotates, we begin to see phases of the moon. And you see phases of the planets. Now, we don't really notice those as much because they're so far away. But you can even see phases of where the stars are going to be during certain times, certain seasons. So all those lights that are reflective lights or these lesser lights in the stars, they all have shadow of turning. But God, who is perfect and true and right and just and perfect light, there's no shadow of turning. You can always trust him. And that's this idea as he looks at his creation it is good. Everything he does is good. Now, when I was an atheist, I had struggles with that. I would look at what the Bible says, and there's things in there, and I would think, the good God you believe in says to do this or not to do this? How can you believe in that? And I would try to use that as proof against the good nature of God. But you know what I've learned after my conversion, after reading and studying through the Bible text over and over again? That God is extremely good. I've, I've learned to trust that. And when there's things I don't understand about what God says, or with things, things that happen in the world, you know, some people get really upset and frustrated. Why did God take my wife, or take my husband, or my child? Some terrible things happen in this world. What I've learned to understand is, even in that, God is good. God is good to us. And the things that happen, if we are leaning on him, we'll begin to see them in a different perspective. We'll understand there's a reason behind all of these things, and the reason is always good. It's because of his goodness. Now, I don't want to get into all the details about some of the things he talks about in the Bible that we may see as bad that are actually good. But what I want us to, to realize, and as we go through these texts, begin to trust in God, that if we'll trust that he's good, and we begin to look at things from his perspective and not from our own, and we'll talk about why that's wrong when we get to chapter 3, this, this broken worldview that we have, we see things from his perspective, we will begin to see that everything is good that he's done. So why then, if God is good, why then, if God is good, can I look out and see bad things happening? Isn't that a problem? Isn't that a problem for you? Why is God good if someone comes up and shoots somebody to steal their wallet? 
We're going to learn about that when we also see something else about God in a little bit, when we find out that God is also order. Because that creates a problem. God is good, and God is order, and God is all-powerful, you say, but he can just speak things into existence. Then why does that happen? What we're going to find out is God decrees order, but there's a part of his creation that decides, I'm going to do it my way. And when that begins to happen, that creates disorder. It's not that God made disorder. It's that disobedience to order brings disorder. And you multiply that by 7.3 billion people, however many is in the world now, this world ought to look much worse than it does. I want to say to you, that's a proof that God is good, that the world looks as good as it does with so many people disobeying his order and following after disorder. It should be much worse than it is. God is good. So God will examine all of his creation, and every time he's going to say it was good. Because it was good, verse 4, what does he do with this light that he's made? Verse 4 says, divides it from darkness. Divides it from darkness. That word is not the best translation. It's true, and it's a possible translation. Somebody have a different word in verse 4? Separated. Separated. That's a better translation. They both seem to mean the same thing, and they, they really can be used interchangeably. But separated helps us understand something else about God and what he's doing here. If you had to guess, then I'll tell you what it means. If you had to guess how many times God's going to separate things in this chapter, how many times would you say? <laughs> seven. You'd be right if you said seven, yes. We're going to see seven distinctions or seven separations made here by God. That word separated or divided here is the root word for the word holy. It's what holy means. It means set apart or separated. God is holy by his nature. He's separate from all creation. He's not spirit. He's not uh, flesh. He's something else. He made both spirit and flesh, but he's still something above that. He's not immortal like some of the spirit part of our, our being is. He is eternal. So by his own nature, he is separated. And he's the one then, because of his dictates, because of his nature, because of what he's made, that has the right then to sanctify, to separate, to holify, to divide all these things into their, into their respective uh, uh, portions and places. So God here separates light from darkness. It's amazing to me how any culture here on earth will understand the difference between light and darkness. <laughs> and almost always, you know, the good guys wear white and the, the bad guys wear black. Or you have this dichotomy between shade and shadow and light and good. I remember from early on, my, my oldest child who's, who's 14 now, he had this little ball that would, that would flash lights and he would throw it down the hall. And one day the battery went out on it and he threw it down the hall into a dark bedroom. And he was probably two or three. We'd never played any scare you games or anything like that. But he walked all the way to the door of the bedroom and stopped. <laughs> I don't remember when that happened because before he would go into the bedroom and get that ball even in the dark. But one day he just stopped. Something in him had changed. He began to perceive something's in the darkness. <laughs> There's something I don't like about that. One of the worst tortures that men have devised to other men is to lock them in a dark room where there's completely nothing, no sound, only there's in this dark room. And eventually it drives you mad. <laughs> there is a cave system in Kentucky, the Mammoth Cave System. Some of you may have done the tours there. And did they take you down and turn the lights out? Yeah, I've heard from people. I've never done that. I'm scared of heights, so I don't go down in caverns because eventually I have to climb back up on these long, rickety stairs. But they, uh, they take you down and turn the lights out for about five minutes, and, the, and then the tour guide has a little pen light. He turns it on. And what I've heard is that when he does that, when they finally turn the big lights on, everybody's around that little pen light because you're starting to despair and you go for any light you can find. God has instilled that, that fear and that sense of need for light 
in our nature. But this archetype of dark and light is a, is a thing that came from what God has done in dividing light from darkness. And so God has called the light good and divided it from darkness. And then, in verse 5, what does, he, what does he do in verse 5? He calls the light day and the darkness he calls night. He begins to name things. This again we'll see as a property that's inherent to God. God is the one who has the right and the authority to give things their determined purpose. And usually, in ancient times especially, names determine purpose. Think about, even in our country, a couple of generations back, if your last name was Smith, people would come to you for what? <laughs> Get some horseshoes made or something done with iron, because that's what your name meant that you did. <laughs> if your name's Wainwright, they're going to get their wagon wheel fixed at your place. Nowadays, our names don't have that kind of a meaning anymore. Some people still put that kind of meaning into their kids' names and things, and we, we try to think of that and be conscious about it, but it, this country doesn't have that anymore. So what do people do when they first meet you? Because your name doesn't carry your meaning. They say, what do you do? <laughs> and then you tell them what you do, and then they've got some kind of context for you. It used to be your name would do that. We see that in the Bible a lot. We'll see people like Paul change, or Saul changing his name to Paul, or Peter becoming, uh, or Simon becoming Peter. And we'll see that a lot of times in the Old Testament, especially Abram becomes Abraham. And those names are, are powerful and significant. And when God changes your name, you better listen. <laughs> so that's the idea that's going through the Old Testament here. And God then is naming things. And we'll see him name several things. I haven't counted these. It may be seven times that he names things here as well. I wouldn't be surprised. But he names here the light day and the darkness night. And so he begins to give purpose to these things. And we'll see this concept again of day and night in just a moment. So we're told then there's evening and morning the first day. And that seems backwards to us. That is the way that the Jewish time is reckoned still that at sunset begins the new day. And so uh, that comes from this concept here. We, we live more under what would be really the Roman concept time that midnight begins a new day. doesn't make a difference in, in our day and age with, uh, in Christ anymore, but it was important to the Jewish reckoning at one time because of this, the counting of the Sabbaths. But there's something interesting about even that in verse 5. The evening and the morning were the first day. Is there sun and moon yet to count the days? No. But how is God counting days? evening and morning. And the language here is the same language he'll use when he finally does bring sun and moon. God is counting the days in 24-hour intervals here. Now, he's not explicit about how much time there is, but all through the rest of the Bible, this idea that God made the world in seven days, he will bring that out as a foundational principle about his nature and what he's able to do. Now, I believe the text is indicating to us here, even before sun and moon came along, that God is counting. He's using 24-hour day counting measures here. This is not evolutionary time. This is not something that is, is a rather new concept now that we're going to try to fit science into the Bible so we can say this was an eon of night and day. There are lots of problems with that we can talk about later. I'm not going to get too deep into those during the, during the class today. But I want you to understand the language here allows for 24-hour days. That's what the language is, is pointing to here. Any comments or questions up through verse 5? I know we've, we've touched on a lot of things here. We've got about five minutes or so before we'll take our first break. I'd be glad to open up for questions, or we can take an earlier break. <coughs> the next text will be a little bit more detailed, a little longer. But comments or questions from, from any of you before we uh, take our break? Yes, girl. Yeah, I was just going to say, you said something very interesting, because I've noticed that in just talking to different people, human beings have an just as you were saying, humans have a way of trying to define God 
by the oneness of themselves. Like for instance, every time I'll talk to someone, when you talk to a lot of people, they can only think of God, and we know that God is one in three persons, mm -hmm. but lots of people can't get the idea that God can be three different things in one. They see God as a single God in a single being. Yep. And that's one of the hardest things to break people's minds up because they want to define it by what we are. Yeah. They define God by what they see, as opposed to what how God, he's the one who defines himself. Yeah, we try to go from us to him and define God instead of letting him define himself. It's interesting you say that because you see that in Genesis 1, we're told that, that God is here. He's the one from the beginning. In John 1, John doesn't qualify at all. He says God from the beginning. And then he tells us that God is Jesus as he goes through the text. The point is he makes Jesus and God equal in their deity and their nature. One of the problems I think we run into is that the word that we have for God, and that this word Jehovah that we'll see, and all the, the words that describe the Godhead really describe the God nature, deity, divine nature. God the Father is fully divine nature. God the Son, fully divine nature. He's God, he's the Son. <laughs> and God the Spirit is fully divine nature, but he's God the Spirit. So there are three persons or personalities, if you will, that all equally share the divine nature. Now, any deeper than that, the Bible really doesn't go. Doesn't really tell us much more than that. We get some examples, but we can't then make all these doctrines that go around what the Bible says because we can't fathom that. We have to re let God reveal Himself to us, and that's what He's doing. The great point. Uh, let me let me bridge to that real quick. That something I meant to say earlier on. The Bible's not going to answer every question we have. When when I was an atheist, I thought, well, I'm going to answer all these questions that I have these loopholes that I see in the text by going to the Bible. And the Bible was not written for that reason. The Bible was written for us to draw to God. And there's going to be things I'd like to know about that he simply just hasn't told me. Part of that is going to keep me humble enough to say, whatever he's revealed, that's what I need to know. And that's what I'm going to do. The rest, the secret things belong to him. Deuteronomy 29 said exactly that. So if I want to live by faith. What usually happens, people that claim to live by faith, is they reject what God has actually said. They go by what they feel he should have said, and that becomes their doctrine. How many, how many doctrines about angels and Satan and things that the Bible never talks about? that people have created and they begin to worship that as their system and they reject what God has clearly spoken about. And so we need to be careful that we just let God speak to us and we do what he says to do. So I hope that'll be impressed on you as we see God revealing himself to us. He's taken the time to do this and he's through eons has, has, uh, has preserved this down for us. And it's a beautiful thing to learn. Other comments or questions before we break for this time? Carl, you mentioned in verse 1 this idea of God creating the heavens and the earth, uh, maybe applying to kind of the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Uh, later on, uh, I, I believe we see this word heavens at times used in a more more physical way, kind of the space, the yes. sky. Um, what, what makes you think that this would be maybe talking about the spiritual realm and the physical realm? We'll talk about that a little more when we get down to verses 14 through 19. But the word is almost always used in the plural form, and it's usually the context that determines which one we're talking about. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about he was taken to the third heaven where he had visions of things that were inexpressible, as unlawful for men to speak about. Revelation 4, John was looking into heaven, the sky, and saw a door open into the heavens, was taken up where he had this revelation. And so we get this idea of another heaven beyond the heaven we see. What we end up seeing in practice, and we'll see this a little bit in the text here, is there's the blue sky, that's heaven, the first heaven. Then the word heavens, usually when it's pluralized, is talking about the second heavens, which would be 
outer space. <laughs> That's where the stars and the planets and everything are hung. And then there's the third heaven. That is kind of a spiritual realm where God is and where people go in these ecstasies to have these visions. We get that a few times in the Bible. So this idea of three heavens, they only had one word. Uh, in Portuguese, the same way, it's just there's one word. We have sky, outer space, and heaven, so we usually use those three distinctly. The Jews had one word, and it's the word heaven, heavens. So they would sometimes, the heaven of heavens, uh, Deuteronomy talks about that God made that one as well. There's a little more about that on the slides as well, but I think that, that covers the basic idea. It's a great question. That does come up a lot when we're going through this text. And we will talk just a bit about that more when we look at the creation of the sky and then the outer space. All right, there's no more comments right now. Why don't we take a moment? We'll, we'll have our have a break, and then we'll have another song, and then we'll get into the rest of this text, verses uh, about 6 through 25, I think, we'll look at for the second part. Thank you so much for your, for your comments.